1: Technology Truths, brought to you by GEICO.
2: Technology
1: Truths. Truth. Teenagers can communicate entirely in emojis.
0: How was the birthday party? Mm. Pizza slice, kitten, soccer ball, pineapple? Truth.
1: It's so easy to switch and save on car insurance at GEICO.com.
0: What are you talking about? Mm. Paperclip, shoulder shrug, high five, wizard hat?
1: What? GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.
2: Hey everyone, you're listening to the RotoViz Best Ball Series, a RotoViz podcast mini series that covers everything best ball. Uh, we're talking MFL 10s, we're talking FFPC, Draft Experts Leagues, maybe some draft app, maybe some Best Ball Dynasty. We'll see what we get into. I'm your host, Blair Andrews. I should have mentioned that at the outset. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Todd Burrows. Todd is a writer at RotoViz, the host of the Run to Daylight podcast. Uh, Todd, thanks for joining me. How's it going?
3: Going very well, Blair. Glad to be here.
2: Great. Well, you write an article on Rotoviz that is the best ball leaderboard, and anyone who's been reading that, I think, noticed at the end you you kind of went through your results for best ball in 2017, and you you basically crushed it. So, I mean, well, first of all, exactly how well did you do? Just to tell all the listeners,
3: <laughs> I I won uh, just under. <clears throat> I won nineteen and a half. Uh, percent of my best ball leagues on MFL 10s, you know, on my fantasy league. And I won four out of 18 on FFPC. But something I'm almost equally proud of is um, I almost came in, you know, probably like 75% of my drafts, I finished in the top six, and only 25% in the bottom six in both formats. And in FFPC, I think out of 18, I only finished beyond six and two of them. So um, it was a very good year for me, and I'm excited to talk about some of the things that helped me succeed and also what I'm hoping to do in the to repeat it.
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, let's get right into it. Uh, what, If there is anything specific, I guess, what is it that you think uh, helped you do so well this year?
3: Well, you know... <clears throat> Uh, one of my uh, foundations in in life, not just in this stuff, is honesty. And honesty starts with being honest with yourself. And the last two years, I came in having had a lot of success in fantasy football my whole life, simulation football. And I wasn't profitable in best balls my first two years. I I didn't lose much, uh, but I didn't win. And so I really put in the time to review what I thought were weaknesses in my game. I wrote an article for Football Diehards before I uh, was with Rotoviz. and uh, I still write for both. And But that article, in case anyone wants to find it, I lay out four different things that I thought could supercharge or fine-tune MFL 10s. Um, and really following that advice and then some of the follow-ups that I learned after that and things that I wrote about really is what led to my success, I believe.
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. You mentioned how it was actually writing the the article that kind of solidified the advice for you. It's uh, funny how often you have to kind of write something, write something out that like helps you think through it.
3: Yeah, I, I basically came up with the theory and then wrote the article. And, you know, as the season went on everything else kind of went from there. Um, but I really think it's the foundation of my success, and I don't see any reason to change any of those four key points moving forward. The, the four main points were uh, bye weeks, paying attention to buy weeks. There was uh, stacking like DFS where it made sense. Uh, if I had a, a, a wide receiver – Let's say uh, Antonio Brown, and I needed a quarterback, and I had Ben Roethlisberger and let's say Matthew Stafford and Phillips Rivers all in the same tier. I would stack. I wouldn't go out of my way to stack, but I stacked when it made sense, trying to, you know, one of the key things that I go on is that best ball is nothing more than like 16 weeks of DFS rolled together in the sense that with DFS, you're always trying to put high scores on the, on the board. Um, best ball each week, the high scores go up on the board. So I thought that stacking would be a good thing to, to do where it made sense. The third thing was, I think everyone needs to look at their risk tolerance some people are too risk averse and that's what i thought i had been and i was missing out on opportunities because i was afraid of certain situations and so i was more risk tolerant other people might be too uh you know too risky and, and, and just load up on a couple guys and one of them gets hurt and you're done. So reviewing your risk is the third thing. And the fourth thing is using an ADP tool for each pick. It's so easy to, you know, pick on the go. You don't want to hold up the draft. And I'm not saying I take the first guy that's available based on his ADP, but I want a real good sense of, you know, the, the real top guys who were available when I picked and I found the road of his best ball app uh, and using it every pick really was a good thing.
2: You kind of touched on what my next question was going to be, which is uh, sort of a question that I bet a lot of people coming from season-long leagues have who are maybe just uh, dipping their toes into best ball. And that's specifically how you approach a best ball draft compared to... Uh, regular redraft, say, where you do have uh, waivers and trades and stuff, and in-season management. Um, How do you approach the the best ball format differently?
3: Well, in the first five or six rounds, not that much. Uh, I want to get the best players that I can get on my team in the first five or six rounds. After that, I'm much more likely to be willing to go after high-variance players, especially at the wide receiver position. historically and going forward also at the quarterback position based on something we'll cover later. But um, because you don't have to choose who to start each week, it's nice to have a guy like Kenny Stills who can rip off a 25 point week. But on the week, you know, if you got seven, eight wide receivers on the week where he puts up two points, you're not stuck with those points. So I think the best ball format definitely allows you to to go after more high variance players. And as I mentioned earlier, buys I've never paid attention to buys in season long, figuring I could always pick someone up or even if I lost a week, right? If I got an eight, no team and all my best players are on buy, and I'm now eight and one, I'm not crying too hard, but in best ball, because it's cumulative you know, taking some zeros in these weeks can be the difference between winning an MFL 10 and not winning an MFL 10.
2: That's a great point, yeah. Uh, I think, you know, bye weeks are one of the things that, you know, within season management, you can kind of get around not making necessarily the smartest draft uh, draft picks.
3: Yeah, it's something, I'm, it's something I'm cognizant of. I don't drive myself crazy. Again, I will one of my like Bible rules about anything with drafting, if you'll excuse the analogy, is I don't want to drop a tier to 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 go after, you know, you know, because a bye week is going to kill me. But typically I've got three or four people I like about the same that are on the same tier when I'm picking. So why not mix up your buys and keep yourself from that problem?
2: would you ever go out of a tier to uh to get a stack that you like
3: no no i uh i won't say never you never say never but uh again you know i i think you know what wins over the long haul is the best players and once you start making negative ev decisions i think you wipe out the advantage you might gain by stacking so why do that and the guy that, and if you don't stack one round, you got two quarterbacks. Maybe next round I'll, I'll I'll have the value and be able to stack. Or, you know, a lot of times this year I stacked uh, Tom Brady with Chris Hogan late. You know, you might be, it doesn't have to be an A stack. So, no, in general, I won't chase it.
2: Uh, before moving on, I want to remind you that you can get a subscription to a RotoViz NFL Pass right now for 30% off. It's available through the NFL podcast homepage, rotoviz.com. Podcast, Your subscription gives you unlimited access to all our NFL content and tools, and it supports the pod. So be sure to get 30% off an NFL pass right now at rotoviz.com slash podcast. Uh, back to the Best Ball Leaderboard article. Could you just briefly explain what that article is all about?
3: Absolutely. The Best Ball Leaderboard um, was Dave Cabin's idea. And Sean liked the idea. So basically Dave would send me the numbers each week, and it provided a look at player production and how it translates into points, starts, and wins for your best ball team. Essentially, we gave points by week based on your finish. So a guy who was the top the top three guys would get five points, the second tier would get four, et cetera. And then we compared consistency versus top end, uh, in the article every week. And we also added in something from Broadway G. If you follow him on Twitter, he has a really great website and you can see the winning percentage of each player each week. And, um, I did a lot of comparisons between winning percentage and consistency by position.
2: That's interesting. And what I guess are the biggest takeaways from doing that kind of comparison?
3: The biggest takeaway for me, there was a couple of them. One was that positionally, it's different. Uh, Quarterback, for instance, I think a guy like Cam Newton and Russell Wilson both had winning percentages well ahead of their performance versus other players. And it didn't make sense necessarily either based on uh, when they were drafted. That was part of it and where you were drafted is important in winning percentage, but other factors uh, I came to realize were really important. So with quarterback, a guy like Cam Newton and Russell Wilson, who can give you that 35 point week were really valuable because you normally draft at least two and sometimes three quarterbacks and quarterback is the most stable position. So On a week where Wilson might get nine points, you'd have a second quarterback who could give you 15 to 18, 20 points, wouldn't hurt you. But those weeks where you could get those 35-point weeks were very important um, at the quarterback position. At running back, what what you think for DFS was also good for best ball opportunity, 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 who's going to get the carries, who's got the opportunity, you know, later rounds, who's the guy who if someone gets hurt is going to get the role. Um, And the other huge takeaway I found is that I started to talk about it a little is that winning percentage just didn't add up. Um, I realized that winning percentage by player wasn't as simple as what I thought historically, like tight end never gets above 15% and quarterback 17%, while running backs and, and wide receivers, you can see them in the 20 to 25. And, and Todd Gurley even ended up on 30% of winning teams this year. The disconnect was that the two things I thought would be most important, player performance and where you were drafted and who was drafted around you wasn't explaining all, you know, the, the variance I was seeing in win rates.
2: Now, that point is really interesting. Could you explain that a little further, What uh, why you think that might be the case?
3: Absolutely. And I'm really excited to talk about this because I haven't heard it brought out before. If you look at Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown, both of those guys had over 20 per, 20% win rates, Uh, Part of that, I figured, was injuries and ineffectiveness to other first round picks like OBJ and Mike Evans. But in Bell's case, it didn't make sense at all that he had a 24 percent win percentage, while Melvin Gordon, who also had a, you know, he had a good year and finished fifth in points, only had a 7 percent win percentage. Sure, Bell outscored Gordon by about five points a game, but it doesn't explain a 17 percent difference. Uh, Two years ago, I found out that, um, you know, it was the same factor, though. And it ties to when your first round draft pick is taken by ADP. It opens up who's available in the second round. So I, I don't know if I made that point real well, but if Lev Bell and Brown were your first round pick, early first round, it put you in position to draft Todd Gurley and or DeAndre Hopkins at the back end of the second round by ADP. And it's the combination of those two guys that supercharged the results and accounted for what I believe is the difference between uh, the numbers I was seeing. And then I remembered that the year before, David Johnson, who had a 27 percent win rate, A lot of times he was going late first round and you could draft him and Zeke Elliott on the turn. And then when Lev Bell was suspended, you could also grab David Johnson and Bell. So I think it's the combination of the first and second round picks that leads to these supercharged winning percentages up top.
2: That's really interesting. Um, But, uh, you know, my question, of course, is, uh, how is this actionable? Because, you know, obviously n- you don't get to pick where you draft. So, uh, you know, what exactly can you do with this information to help you going forward?
3: Yep. And I think, you know, first round, the action is just take the best player, right? Um, The second round, I think, though, where you can look to be actionable is both Todd Gurley and DeAndre Hopkins and Lev Bell, for that example, the year before, were first-round picks the year before who, because of certain situations, had dropped. So what what you can do is look for first-round talented players who underperformed the year before. Those are the guys in that late second, early third round who might be able to help cause those combinations that you're looking for. The other extreme is a guy like Doug Baldwin, who I had owned a ton of the two years previously, but I faded this year because I felt that he didn't have more upside beyond what he had done in the past. And so um, I think that with your second round pick, you want to be cognizant of having a good bit of ownership in guys like I, I expect Mike Evans to drop this year based on what he did this year. T.Y. Hilton's certainly going to drop. Those are guys who have a lot of talent, but the situation didn't work out well for them this year that might be able to be joined together with a solid first round pick and supercharge your results.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the the two guys you mentioned who really were kind of league winners, I think Hopkins and Gurley, they both were first round picks. And then because they didn't quite perform up to expectations they were you were able to get them basically in the late second early third round
3: yeah and they and they failed for a lot of reasons that were out of their control i mean todd Gurley had no offensive line and poor head coaching uh and offensive coaching deandre hopkins had just with blake osweiler brock osweiler sorry uh blake, um just awful quarterback play so the talent The durable asset of talent, which I talk about in certain articles about how to find value in uh, players, their talent didn't go away. And by drafting them in the second round, you had a pretty good chance, though, even if they didn't have a great year, they wouldn't kill you. But they had that top end upside that if things could turn around in their situation, they could really pay off.
2: We talked a bit about how well you did last year i want to know what is probably the worst call you made in 2017
3: uh the worst call i made was uh the uh, the two of them really sammy watkins i just did not you know I, and part of that one i get a mea culpa on because he was traded from the bills to the rams uh, but the one guy I, I had no excuse for underperforming was jay ajayi he was doing terrible well long before he was traded I missed on both of those guys and they were both in my top 10 owned players.
2: Yeah, that's that's rough. Those was, Ajayi was a uh really major bust. I think a lot of people got him wrong.
3: Yep, he was uh he had one of the the him and Amari Cooper uh were dueling back and forth on the best ball leaderboard for the worst winning percentage uh of a of an early draft of any player. In hmm. fact, um I forget who was the player. But um, there was one guy who had the same winning percentage uh, as as uh, uh, one of those guys who had gotten injured in week one. I think it was David Johnson had like the same winning percentage as – so if you drafted Jay Ajayi, you had about the same chance of winning as you did David Johnson.
2: Well, yeah, and David Johnson didn't do anything for you the whole season, so that's amazing.
3: Yeah, that's how bad Ajayi's season was for <laughs> best ball.
1: Terms and conditions apply for entertainment purposes only. Void where prohibited.
2: Well, I'll give you a chance to redeem yourself a little bit later, but first I want to ask um, whether there are any, I guess from a strategy perspective, are there areas that you think the best ball community at large uh, tends to overemphasize?
3: Yeah, I I would say that lineup construction and And again, I, I don't want this to be misconstrued. I'm not saying lineup construction isn't important. But when you read the articles on best ball, I would say eighty percent of them are on lineup construction. And if you look at some of the great work that guys like Mike Beers have done over the years, you find that the differences between, say, two and three quarterbacks or two and three tight ends or two and three defenses is less than one percentage point. It's not something you want to ignore, but I think that it is overemphasized because the, the, the gain that you get from it isn't as great as in other words, you could have perfect line of construction and draft the wrong players and lose. So I spend about 20 percent of my time making sure that my line of construction is within certain boundaries. I don't want to have four quarterbacks and I don't want to have one quarterback. I want to have two or three. But as the draft goes on, I really don't care if it's two or three. Uh, But what I do want to do is spend a lot of time reviewing opportunities for players and looking for people who crush their ADP. I heard Evan Silva say last year that roster construction and finding ADP crushers is how you win MFL 10s. And I just think that the community at large spends much more of their time on roster construction than finding the people who can crush ADP. And I'm the opposite. I want to spend most of my time finding those guys who can win me best ball leagues.
2: I guess if you'll allow me to sort of play devil's advocate here a little bit, I think you probably agree with this. But one thing, one reason I think lineup construction is so important is just that the player evaluation is not only difficult, but it's also pretty fragile. Uh, So, you know, putting yourself in a, at least getting the lineup construction part of it right gives your... Gives you a better chance to, I guess, benefit from uh, things that you can't predict.
3: And lineup construction also consists of, you know, if I want to take two tight ends early in the first ten rounds, uh, like Nick Giffen, uh, Roto Doc here at uh, Roto Viz uh, wrote about last year, that's a lineup construction decision. I think that that's good. And I, I look, I want to, I want to be on top of. What's optimal? I don't want to draft suboptimal uh, roster construction. And I also want to try different things as drafts go along. But I also think that ADP is an imperfect thing and looking for players and situations that are overvalued and undervalued. And, you know, that takes a lot more time. I, once you get the basics of roster construction down, you're free to do a lot of understanding of player valuation and where you might be able to find value. And that's my point. And it's not just the guys who crush ADP, but every year you're going to find number two wide receivers who are going under the radar in the 15th to the 18th round. This year it was Mohamed Sanu and Devin Funches. Now Funches had his number one wide receiver traded, but Every year, I know that there's going to be a couple number two wide receivers who are going to be on the field, you know, 80 percent of snaps who people don't think that much of, but they're going to be really valuable to my best ball team. So looking for guys like that, looking for trends on players and, and, and you know, things that other people aren't talking about, I, I really think that that's the best way to differentiate yourself from the crowd. That's a great point,
2: yeah. Uh, speaking of differentiating yourself from the crowd even further, I guess I want to ask about kind of the flip side to that. Um, are there things you think everyone else who plays best ball should be paying more attention to?
3: Yeah, I, I think the number one thing that people don't like to draft is defenses. I wrote an article last year on defense and I I, late, I said, yeah defenses, you know, basically with defense, you get very little information out of the community. And most of it is don't draft defenses early. And defense is really volatile. And I hate drafting defenses. So anytime everyone hates something, to me, it makes it an opportunity. So I studied situations where I, you know, I found I did this article, and I found that 20-point weeks, which are gold in best ball and super gold for defenses, that the top six defenses in in now in three years running had about 55 percent. The top six teams had 55 percent of the 20-point weeks. So I said, well, there's got to be ways. Yeah, volatility is hard to predict, But there has to be certain things that you can look at that might help you to determine who might be on the right side of variance. And I laid out the Rams because of Wade Phillips, the Chargers because they were young and improving, the Jags who had, you know, basically everyone's, it was everyone's favorite pick the year before and they hadn't done well, but had all the talent and all those guys were mentioned in my article. So I think, you know, people either want to draft defenses early or just completely punt the position. I really think if you put in some time to study defenses and who has a chance to uh, be that volatile defense that's going to be in the top five or six, you can can really help yourself.
2: Yeah, I'm definitely in the camp of people who I'm probably err on the side of punting defense, just taking you know, with my last three picks, taking any three defenses or however many I decide?
3: Well, if you look at my top, you know, top ownership of defense, it was the Bucks. I, I, I blew that one. <laughs> uh, but I, I I had 36 Bucks. I had 30 Eagles. I had 29 Bengals. I had 27 Rams and I had 25 Jags. So, you know, that really helped me. That, you know, that that most weeks I had the Eagles, the Jags and the Rams, you know, score and they and those guys became top defenses. The Chargers weren't much behind that as well. So I I, and, and, you know, the one that I kicked myself on that I was on, but I didn't draft enough of was the Ravens. But uh, again, uh, I do think you can identify these teams that have a pretty good chance to jump up.
2: Yeah, you pointed out some sort of uh personnel factors that kind of led you to these defenses. Have you found any um, you know, at Rotoviz we're kind of we're all about the, the numbers and the metrics, have you found any statistics that are at least somewhat predictive of a, a good defense in MFL tens or anything like that?
3: Well, certainly you wanna look at teams that have a chance to have a winning record. I, I studied and I found that the top six defenses averaged 10 wins over the last couple years. When you're winning team, you have a much higher chance of interceptions being thrown. And then if you have, uh, you know, you can look at play caller tendencies, uh and you could look at the numbers on that: who blitzes the most, who has aggressive schemes versus non-aggressive schemes. And then, what's really great is coordinators leave and move every year. When those coordinators, like Wade Phillips, move, I mean, it's a golden opportunity to get a value on a defense. Uh, and I wouldn't shock; it wouldn't shock me if the Rams improved again next year.
2: I can't say I would have predicted either the Jags or the Rams to have. Uh, quite the records they did, but uh, yeah, that's really good advice.
3: No, and it's not about getting it. You know, nobody is that smart. But and you know what? What we're trying to do here is give you. You know, again, with roster construction, let's say, you know, winning quarter two quarterback teams are eight point five percent, and three quarterback teams are eight point one percent. You know, why chase that point four percent? Where, you know, I might be able to give myself a 10 to 20 percent chance of having a better defense by, you know, making some good, solid, educated decisions when I'm picking them. And that's what I mean about looking for ADP crushers. You know, if you if you did your research and and landed on the Jags and you ended up with 30, 35 percent of the Jags, not that I did, uh, you did yourself a huge favor.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, We've been talking a little bit about, about, uh, I guess, how much exposure you have and your ownership percentages on these uh, various defenses and players. Is that something that you pay a lot of attention to and that you're pretty precise in managing, or are you not as concerned?
3: It was two years ago when I didn't win. And so this year I decided to have – I'll I'll use an analogy – uh, you know how, like, if you let your dog out in the backyard and you have an electric fence, you really don't care where he goes as long as he stays within those boundaries. You know, I don't, I set, you know, maximums by round. But as long as it's within those walls, I don't spend too much time looking at exposure. And what shocked me by not focusing on on it this year I ended up, my top-owned positional player was Zach Ertz, and I only had 23% of him. So I, you know, as we've mentioned, did very well this year without having super high ownership on any one player. And that really didn't happen intentionally. But again, I think exposure is important. It's part of the puzzle. But that, you know, why didn't I have more Zach Ertz? Well, part of it was at one point i backed away a little cuz tight ends get hurt a lot and he was up around 40% the other thing was he he started moving up draft boards so where i was getting him in the 10th round early he was in the 8th round and i didn't have as i still drafted him once in a while i just didn't have as much interest in him in the 8th round as the 10th so a lot of what ends up happening with exposure is determined by that player's ADP and how you value them as the season goes along.
2: Yeah, it goes back to finding the ADP crushers and uh, finding values. And if you're if you're doing that, you know, just the way players move around the board will kind of naturally, uh, naturally set your exposures in ways that are, are uh, maybe not optimal, but close enough, I guess.
3: Yeah, like a, a perfect example is I loved. I was passing on Kelsey and Gronk for Rudolph and Ertz. And at one point, I owned both Rudolph and Ertz close to 40 percent, like 30 something for Rudolph. And and then Rudolph's ADP really went up. Ertz's also went up. I wasn't looking to do them both in the same lineup. But I remember one time Ertz, was. I already took Rudolph to mix up my exposure and Ertz was there around later in the 10th. I wasn't looking to take a second tight end, but he was such a screaming value to me that I I paired them up. And and that's a way where you can differentiate your roster construction without just, you know, if I had sat down and said how I was going to handle tight end in that draft, I never would have ended up with those two guys. But when I you know, saw Ertz was available and I al- already had Rudolph, I wasn't going to pass him just because I had taken Rudolph.
2: Probably wouldn't have been that bad to have to be even more exposed to, to Ertz. But I wonder if, say, Rudolph hadn't, uh, if his ADP hadn't moved, would you have been happy taking him at the value you were getting him? Or would you have wanted to sort of make a conscious decision to back off?
3: I think, you know, for a tight end, 30% is about as much as I want. Uh, maybe for a later tight end, you know, in the, you know, like, uh, like I had a lot of Charles Clay. Uh, if there was nobody else I liked late, would I have 50% Charles Clay? Maybe, you know, in the 18th round as a third, a third tight end, would I have gone heavier on a guy? Absolutely. So I, I I don't have too many hard and fast rules, Uh, you know, I'm not, but one of them is I'm not going to, you know, let something like lineup construction or exposure cause me to miss out on a screaming deal.
2: Kind of going along with this question, are you at all worried about maybe being too diversified about uh, not having a sort of tight core of players?
3: It's funny because when I, I, I didn't notice how little exposure I had on guys until it was like the middle of August. I had looked early one time, saw Ertz and Rudolph around 40% and said, ah, I should cut that back a bit. And that was the last time I looked until like August 15th. And then I'm like, wow, I don't own anyone more than like 22 23%. So I was a little concerned, but I ended up winning, you know, really well this year. So I talked to Mike Beers about it and we both agreed that – um You don't need to have a super high ownership on a guy, uh, you know, eight and a half percent, I think, is the uh, the average uh, ownership on a player. So, you know, if I've got 20 to 22 percent, that's a pretty strong percentage. I'm not against, again, having 40 or 50 percent of a guy, you know, like if there was someone in the 20th round who I could get every single – like Robbie Anderson was a guy I liked a lot. There were a couple other guys I liked there too. But if I thought Robbie Anderson was the only guy that was that good and I could get him in 60% of my drafts at, in the 20th round, I would do it. I'm not going to do that in the fifth round.
2: Right. But with the late-round guys, you can afford to take a stance on them and be, be way overweight. And it's not going to hurt you that much, I guess.
3: I think you have to weigh the reality that people get injured with the opportunity and then compare it to other players that you like at the same point. Yeah, I liked Robbie Anderson a lot, but I also liked Chris Hogan, Malcolm Mitchell, and Paul Richardson. Now, one of them got hurt, and the other three did pretty good for me. Would it have been great if I had huge exposure to Robbie Anderson because he ultimately was the the best one of the group? Sure, it would have been. But what if he was the one who got hurt and Paul Richardson was the one who had the really great year? Um, So it, it really is a balance of of, you know, the reality of injuries and the number of guys that you like at a certain area. And it doesn't hurt to mix them up if you like them about the same.
2: I asked you already about your worst call, and you've mentioned uh, Robbie Anderson and Zach Ertz as being some good ones. But what would you say was your your best? The best thing you did in best ball in twenty seventeen.
3: Um, I would say the best thing I did was study harder, and try and stay true to myself. Um, I, you know, I I think that that's. I think that that was the best thing that I did. I mean, I looked, you know, most of my big calls were good this year. Uh, But I also had some bad calls and a lot of injuries. So following those rules of supercharging my teams, I think was the best call of the year.
2: All right. And along those lines, I guess if you could go back in time to before you started playing baseball, this is kind of an imaginative question. Uh, What what sort of advice would you give yourself? Not player
3: evaluation related. That is a great question. And I guess the answer is tied into what I find the hardest part of doing this is, which is to be open to others' opinions with without being pushed around by them. We all hang out on Twitter, we all share opinions, we all read articles, and you need to be able to listen and you know if it makes sense to change your mind to do it, but not just to change your mind and get off a guy you really like just because the crowd doesn't like him. Um, I really feel like it is the absolute hardest thing to do, but I did much better at it this year. And if I could go back to my first two years and give myself advice, I would say that that was the best advice I could give myself to to really, you know, not shut other people's opinions down people tend to want things to be black and white either listen to everything that people say or listen to nothing it's very difficult to manage information being open without being pushed around it's a fine balance and it's something i hope to keep getting better at
2: yeah that's a great point uh i wonder if you found any uh maybe anyways any techniques or shortcuts or something that help you do that better
3: well i think it's finding the time to think about the players and when you read something go back and look at well first of all check internally if you know and feel you know we feel things as humans and admit that wow this is pushing me to want to to do x is this impulse being led by something positive where they made a really great point or am I being influenced just because they were so nugget about a player I should hate him too. And so the, the best thing you can do is stop and review the reasons why you either like someone or don't like someone. Sometimes people will be trying to talk you into someone that you don't like. And, you know, you, so I think stopping reviewing why you have that opinion about a person and whether what that other person is saying changes in any way why you came to the conclusion you did. If it does, then be open to changing. If it doesn't, you just try and let it be noise and block it out.
2: Yeah, I think it's really important to sort of uh, be thoughtful about your evaluations and really, uh, yeah, like you said, really take the time to, to review you know, what you think yourself and uh, kind of compare that with what you're what you're reading elsewhere.
3: Yeah, it's very hard in life in general to be confident without being arrogant. And I think to be successful at anything in life, you need to have confidence. Um, And I think it's also important, just as important to not be arrogant. So by stopping and considering what others think, and their and checking their reasoning versus your reasoning, you end up at a nice balance.
2: I want to shift gears a little bit. You mentioned at the top that you you did really well in MFL tens and in FFPC draft experts leagues. Now I know the FFPC has tight end premium scoring, uh, so I wonder, is do you approach the FFPC drafts a little bit differently than you do the MFL tens?
3: Ah, uh, I do the main thing is that you've got to value tight ends properly. And it was funny because I didn't put nearly the research into FFPC uh, and I blew a couple tight end calls. You know, I had a lot of Greg Olson who got hurt. Uh, Kyle Rudolph didn't do it for most of the year what I thought he would. and And that was difficult. But I do think that where I made that up, is in my depth of knowledge, you know, MFL tens are 20 rounds and at the end of 20 rounds, there's always guys, I mean, it's very rare for me to finish a, a 20 round draft and say, I got everyone that I wanted in a 28 round draft, you figure you're going to draft two or three kickers. So it's the equivalent of a 25 round draft in the FFPC. You know, people who really are good at hitting late round picks, have a huge advantage in that format if you don't know you know the the guys who might come out of nowhere and and be a hit um you know like i mentioned robbie anderson uh paul richardson and chris hogan in a 20 round draft i might only be able to get one of those guys because they're all drafted in you know the 18th to the 20th round and i need a defense and and roster construction constrains me. I could end up with two or three of those guys in a FFPC draft. So I I love the 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 more rounds that you get with the FFPC.
2: Yeah, definitely, it's a lot of fun to to uh, have that depth. You know, during the off season at RotoViz, we do a lot of work on on uh, prospects and rookies, and a lot of rookies are not you know. They're still around at the end of an MFL 10 draft sometimes, but the FFPC, you get a chance to actually use them.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I even took Jimmy Garoppolo in a couple of those. I've been a Jimmy G truther for a long time, uh, and I'm rarely a truther about anyone, but uh, I've been on him. Uh, But one thing I was proud of with the FFPC is uh, we did a Rotoviz one with the listeners, and I won that one. So that, you know, there's certain ones that are a little more special than others. I had done some podcasting for Rotoviz on Best Ball last year, and I obviously write a lot of articles about the subject. So it was really nice not to finish last, but even better to to win that one. That that, that meant a little bit more to me than normal, um, you know, because you're always trying to be credible.
2: Yeah, nice. Um, You know, some of the people listening and a lot of People in the best ball community are people who probably have been playing maybe one year, maybe two. And they maybe are in the kind of the situation you found yourself in uh, prior to this season, I guess, where they they are not quite profitable or only a little bit. Maybe what's the best way you think that person can improve?
3: Oh, beyond just listening to me and reading my (laughs) articles? (laughs) No, I, I think, first of all, you have to be true to yourself. And second of all, you have to recognize that almost everyone who writes about the n f l from Evan Silva down to to me, who was just started writing, does these best balls. There's a tremendous amount of very smart people doing these, and I think you you know you have to really take them seriously and look for advantages. Um, it's just so easy. I always call uh, best ball kind of the one night stand of fantasy football because you get all the joy of drafting without the responsibility of having a relationship with the team. And, and I, and, and it's just so, you know, it's like anything else that's that much fun in life. It's easy to get addicted, and part of the reason I didn't do well my second year was because I was, you know, I, I just loved drafting so much and I was really busy and I kept doing it without studying. So the best advice I can give you is, you know, review your teams, also review the teams that won your leagues. What did they do that you didn't do? Look for trends, read articles and find ways that you can prove yourself you're never going to be me, and God knows I wouldn't want you to be me because I sometimes don't want to be me. But definitely look to be the best you that you can be, and I think you'll improve.
2: All right, good stuff. Uh, so uh, I guess the last question I want to ask is what? Uh, how are you preparing for 2018? How are you planning to approach best ball drafts in the coming year, and what are your goals for
3: 2018? Um, well, always, I want to have a sense of humor about myself and, uh, not rest on my success from last year. Last year's over, like Bill Belichick always says we're on to 2018 (laughs) and I want to really work hard to continue to improve. One area that I've marked for my next round of study, along with going deeper into the things I've already written about is the offensive line. I think it's like defense in the sense that not a lot of people spend much time thinking about it, but it's a really great way to improve. If you look at the additions of Andrew Whitworth and John Sullivan to the Rams line and how it helped turn around Todd Gurley and the opposite of that and how the Giants did nothing to improve their offensive line and their team and players underperformed, I think that really looking at teams that have offensive lines that have a reason, you have a reason to think and improve is uh, a great way to uh, find those players who are going to both over and underperform ADP. I'll also be podcasting and writing the things I find and hopefully others can share in my success should I end up having it. All
2: right. Well, yeah, we wish you the best of luck in 2018, obviously. Uh, that's going to do it for today's edition of the RotoViz Best Ball Series. I'm Blair Andrews. You can find me on Twitter at amitherealblair. Special thanks to our guest Todd Burroughs, who you can find at Todd from PA. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the RotoViz Best Ball Series. Please rate and review the RotoViz Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Contact us by email, rotovizradio at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter, at RotoViz Radio. And remember, you can always support the pod by subscribing to RotoViz at a 30% discount for the RotoViz Radio homepage, rotoviz.com slash podcast.
0: AAA Home Insurance isn't just about roofs and windows. It's about the people inside. Honey, that tiny leak. Not so tiny. Which is why you get a full replacement guarantee on everything we cover. Mom, I dented the car. And discounts when you bundle your home and auto insurance. Mom, can we go to Hawaii? Plus, when you pair your coverage with a AAA membership, you get discounts on travel, hotels, and more. Oh, thanks, AAA. Join today at AAA.com. Get great insurance and more to outsmart life at home. AAA. Outsmart life. plus sales tax and activation fee. $50 plus rate plan required. Not valid for numbers currently on T-Mobile Network or on Metro in past 90 days. Offer subject to change. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Amazon Prime has a $12.99 per month value. Restrictions apply. See store for details and terms and conditions.
1: Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings